Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your many blessings, for your love, for your truth. We ask for your spirit to join us, enlighten our minds, draw us into unity of your love and your kingdom. Uh, Help us to have uh, greater insight and ability to apply your methods to our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Now I want to make an announcement primarily to our online uh, followers. If uh, just to, just let you know, if you email me or put stuff on our Facebook page or f- try to Facebook friend me and I don't respond, don't get your feelings hurt. Okay, seriously, don't get your feelings hurt. Uh, I am uh, not only full time practice seeing patients in my office uh, uh, eight hours a day, uh, Monday through Thursday. I just finished two years as president of the Tennessee Psychiatric Association. I'm still president of the Southern Psychiatric Association. Prepare this class each week. Have the ministry and a lot of other things going. I I I personally still ship and prepare and and prepare and ship about fifty to sixty packages a week for our ministry. And so there's a lot of emails I get and things that I see that I don't respond to. Don't get your feelings hurt if that happens. It's all math. Be gracious. And, and I know a few people have responded with, with some, some responses like somehow we don't care. or, or so. It's not the case. It's just that I, I'm a finite being who only has so much time and can't get to everything. Okay? So I just hope you'll be gracious. All right. So um, on our lesson, we're doing... Lesson number five, the role of the church in the community. And the lesson title this week is Jesus on Community Outreach. And, and we read the first two paragraphs in the Sabbath lesson. It says, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, best known for his adventure story, Treasure Island, had been a sickly boy who couldn't go to school regularly. Finally, his parents hired a teacher to educate him and a nanny to help with his personal needs. One night, when his uh, nanny came to check on him before he went to bed, he was found out of bed and his hands and nose pressed up against the window. His nanny firmly told him to get back in bed before he got a chill. Robert asked her to come to the window and see what, what he was seeing. The nanny did so. Down below on the street, there was a lamplighter lighting the street lights. Look there, Robert said. There's a man poking holes in the darkness. <laughs> And I thought this was a really nice illustration, this idea of poking holes in the darkness. And, and is there a spiritual application? Of course, the lesson is implied. There's a spiritual application. And, and, you know, where to be lights in the world, to poke holes in the darkness. The question is, when we think of light and darkness, what does it mean spiritually? What's spiritual light? What's spiritual darkness? Darkness is lies. Darkness is lies. Okay, and light would be? So I, and I know your minds did the same thing. It jumped right to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. What's this talking about? What did you hear here? What is the light? It said, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. What do you understand that to mean? What do you understand that to mean? Well, as you're thinking about that, Jesus is speaking in John chapter 3. And notice, this might be significant, because notice what Jesus says just before he he unpacks what he's going to say. He says, this 
is the verdict. I what the, no, this is Jesus speaking. He's about to give a verdict. What's his verdict? John 3, starting verse 19 and 20, 21. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. He came into the world to bring the truth. He came into the world to bring the truth. So what does light do to darkness? Reveals the truth. What, what does light do to darkness? Eradicates it. It eradicates it. It dissipates it. it. It just pushes it back, doesn't it? So if the light is the truth, and that, would you go as far as say, because it says this light is the life of men, I mean, excuse me, that his life is the light, would, 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 would the light also be more than just truth? Would it also be the life of, of Christ, which is based on what? What's life based on in God's universe? Love. Love. So we say truth and love is light. Hmm. And then darkness would be lies and selfishness. What did Jesus mean, do you think, now with this in mind, putting all this together, processing it, when he, put, when he said that, he said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness. This over. That's the verdict. What does he mean? Is he describing in that process, this is the verdict, is this a judicial process he's describing here? When you hear verdicts, don't you often think of a judge and a jury? That's what's the verdict. Is that what it means here? Or is this verdict a description of reality? What actually is true? What is the true condition of the hearts and minds? And how do hearts and minds react to the unveiling truth and love of God, to the life of Christ revealed. How do hearts and minds, the verdict, those in darkness don't want to come into the light. What determines whether people are saved or lost in the end? What's the verdict? That light has shone into the world, but those in darkness don't want to come into the light. They, they instead flee from the light. This is the verdict. This is what happens. This is why it happens. What about this text as we think about, oh, oh wait, before we get to the text, in the physical world, what is one of the greatest sources of light in the physical world? The sun. And when the sun's not up, fire, right? Which is, the sun is also a form of fire. But fire, sun, flame. And how is the presence of God often described in Scripture? As fire, isn't it? So the greatest source of physical light, fire. God's presence is a, is a, is a burning fire. Things like a pillar of fire by night, right? Or streams of fire, rivers of fire coming out from him, tongues of fire when the Holy Spirit came. You see this metaphor of fire in God's presence over and over. Our God is a consuming fire over and over again. With all that in mind, let's read Malachi 4, 1 and 2. So put some pieces together. Still working on truth. Oh, excuse me, light and darkness. Truth and lies, love and selfishness, fire and light. Let's put it together. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left of them. But for those who revere my name, 
the sun, S-U-N, sun of righteousness, will rise with healing in, his, in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Hmm. Let's start with focusing on the sun, S-U-N, sun of righteousness. Who's that referring to? Is that, is that referring to the ball, the, 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 the solar object that we see that every 24 hours? Is that what it's referring to? No, it's the son of righteousness. But you notice it's not S-O-N of righteousness. In this text, it's S-U-N of righteousness. What do you think is being implied? That what we read out of John, the light that has come into the world. Yeah. Um, and do you know if you read in other translations that he's rising, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. But actually, when, when a solar object called a sun... What is it that extends out from a solar object called a sun? Is it wings? Rays. Rays or beams. And if you, more modern translations will actually translate that with healing in his beams. Because actually the, the Hebrew there doesn't say wings. The Hebrew actually is a word that means the things that extend out from. <laughs> he rises with the things that extend out from. <laughs> with healing and the things that extend out from. What is it that extends out from the sun? Beams. So a lot of them will say beams now, or streams of light. Okay? We, so the beams, not wings, the beams of, of light coming out from the sun, and they're extending out to do what in this text? The beams are extending out, the wings, the things that are extending out, they're, the purpose of the text, they're, they're, they're to achieve what? Healing. Healing is in the beams, is what it says. Healing is in the streams of light coming from the sun. That's what's in the... But what's actually happening to the wicked in the verse before from all this? Wait, how can healing be in the beams, but it's destroying? What's going on with this? It's the beams of, I'm going to suggest to you, these are the beams of infinite, unveiled love and truth. Our God is a consuming fire. This is the beam. They heal those who have come to develop hearts and minds that love truth and love God and others. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But what happens to those who don't like truth, who deny truth? One other element to learn from this object lesson here, the sun of righteousness rises. What happens if you're in a dark cave? You've been in darkness. Remember Isaiah? Darkness covers the earth. Gross darkness covers the people. Right? What darkness about what? About God. So what happens if you're in a dark cave? You've been in there, you've been trapped. Maybe maybe even just four hours, maybe eight hours, maybe a couple of days. You're, you've been in darkness for a while. And they bring you out of that cave at 12 noon on a sunny July day. What's that going to be like for you? Will you enjoy that? Might it be painful to you? Might it be so uncomfortable you actually turn to go back into the cave? They, they don't love the light. They want to go back into the darkness. What happens though if they bring you out of that cave at 4 a.m. and let you sit there as the sun rises? Now what happens? The sun of righteousness is rising, rising with healing in his beams. See, I think this is talking about for the last at least 200 years in earth's history, truth has been increasing in its intensity and clarity on earth. The sun of righteousness is rising. More and more truth is shining on the earth. 
And we have an opportunity to come out of the darkness that covers the people, to assimilate the truth in, in, in aloquat, in amounts that we can handle, that, that invigorates, that, that thrills. And imagine watching the sun rise. We see the dawn and we see the, the beautiful kaleidoscope of colors and we are thrilled by the, the rising sun. We don't run from it. But what happens if you instead prefer to stay in the cave until the sun's at high noon? Then what happens when you come out into the sun? You see? So there's re- who's, those who today, right now, we are all making the decision as truth is presented. Are you a lover of truth? You've developed that heart and mind that says, you know what? I'm a finite being. I don't know everything. There's lots I don't know. But you know what, God? I want a heart that loves truth and is is has a desire to assimilate, understand, uh, comprehend, and apply truth to my life at the earliest possible moment my brain is able to understand. That's, who, that's my heart. That's who I want to be, a lover of truth. I want to grow in the truth, advance in the truth, move forward in the truth. Then you're a person who's going to be transformed as the sun rises versus those who, I have the truth. <laughs> And I've already defined it, I've codified it, I've put it into 28 fundamental beliefs, I've listed it out, and if it doesn't fit in that precise definition, it can't be truth, I'm going to reject it. Then I put on my blinders. So if we look at this, what happens to those who reign in darkness when Jesus Christ comes in the fullness of his life-giving glory? This is like coming out in, in the noontime. And what will they do? The Bible describes what they do, they beg for something. They beg to go back into the cave. Let the mountains fall on me. And the mountain falls on you and you don't die, you're in a cave. Okay? You're, you're covered by a mountain. You're in darkness. Okay? And that's what they want. They want to go back into the cave. Yes. Growing up, I always that quote that we all know about truth being progressive. I always wondered growing up, why aren't we learning anything new? Because it would expose errors that we currently have that we'd have to give up and come up and say, you know what? I taught this for many years. And if you look back at some of my early sermons, I went back and found some sermons I gave way, way back 25 years ago. And I had some stuff in there that I just am really sad that I had in there. Really did. Um, so at the beginning of the thousand years now, this revelation comes, let's, let's read second Thessalonians two, eight through 10. Think about the, the revelation, Christ coming in his glory. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the, uh, this, is, this is profound, he overthrows him with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor or brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the, uh, with the works of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because, here's why, why do you perish? They did not, excuse me, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They did not develop a heart that says, you know what, I want a heart that loves truth, I want to advance in truth. No, their heart was one that didn't love truth. They loved their own creeds, their own doctrines, their own preconceived ideas, their own little box that they've constructed in their own mind to live by. They didn't love truth. And if you didn't love truth, you can't grow. You reject it. You stay in the cave. Notice they are destroyed by the breath of his mouth. Similar to they're destroyed by the sword, slays them by the sword, and the rider on the white horse has a sword coming out of where? His mouth, and what is it that comes out of the mouth? Well, words. 
And in this particular case, because it's Jesus Christ, it's only truth that comes out of his mouth. uh, Somebody else might speak a lie. Satan comes out of his mouth words, but his words are not truth. But out of the rider on the white horse, what comes out of the words of truth, and the scripture is described as a double-edged sword. You see, they're slain by truth, by the reality, by their own condition. That's the beginning of the thousand years. Now here's a description at the end of the thousand years. And from the book Great Controversy 664. With military, no, no, the end of the thousand years, right, the Christ has come to be in the thousand years, all the righteous dead have risen, all the righteous living have been transformed. We've gone off for a thousand years with the Lord in the air, live in heaven. The wicked dead are dead, and the wicked living at that time are slain. A thousand years later, Lord comes back, New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, settles on earth. The wicked from all history are raised. Bible says a period of time goes by where they build implements of war. And listen to what's happening. This is, this is at the end of that war-building equipment time, and they're about to march on the city. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken and uneven surface of the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the new Jerusalem are closed. If they're closed at this point in time, what position were they in prior? Yeah, you don't close a gate that's already closed, do you? No. no. So, so get your mind. This entire time up to this point, the New Jerusalem's on earth and the gates are open. We're going to come back to that. Think the implications. What are we learning? Why are they open? It says, and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. Now Christ, at this point in time, appears to the views of his enemy. Far above the city, upon foundation of burnished gold, is a throne, high and lifted up. Upon the throne sits the Son of God and around him are the subjects of his kingdom. The power and majesty of Christ, no language can describe, no pen portray. The glory of the eternal Father is enshrouding his Son. The brightness of his presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Did did you hear what just happened? Could you visualize it in your mind? Christ is high and lifted up. The fire from Christ comes down and flows where first? into the city of God, which is the home of the righteous, and out through the gates to the people, to the wicked. Very profound. We'll come back. So what what are some of the lessons? First, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open until the wicked march in mass. And what do we learn? This is their free choice not to come in. So, so get your mind around this. All those people who say, well, God, uh, in, during the flood, during Sodom and Gomorrah, during the uh, firstborn of Egypt, during the uh, 185,000 Assyrians, during the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, all these places where God, he cut off their probation. He made the, he closed their destiny. They cannot, they, they, it was shut down for them. That 18-year-old who was conscripted into Ahab's army, he was a worshiper of, of uh, he, he was a worshiper of Baal, but he was confused because of, and he, and he would have converted had he had a little more time with, with prophet Elijah to, to speak the truth to him, but God didn't give him that time. God just shut him down. He was only 18. What do we learn? At the end of a thousand years, everybody comes up. Gates are open. And why are they kept outside the city? There's no description in any inspired record that I've ever seen that there's an angel with a flaming sword like in Eden after, after the sin. There's an angel with a flaming sword barred their way to the tree of life. There's no angel with a flaming sword at the gates. Gates are open. Why don't people come in? They don't want to. They don't want to. What's revealed? That 
everybody who stays outside the city stays outside by their own free will choices. God doesn't keep them out. They keep themselves out. This is profound. Do you understand the, the implications of this? Why is this so important to be revealed? But as I present this, invariably I get an email every time I mention this, and I get one or two every time. So for those who's going to send me that email, listen very carefully. <laughs> because this is, this is what the email will say. Are you saying that the unrepentant on earth get a second chance? That's the question. It always comes in. Are you saying they get a second chance? I'm not going to answer that question right now at this moment. I'm going to first take a pause and give you a chance. What would you say to them? Their conscience is already serious, so they're probably not. So, but, but, but is God giving them a second chance? Or you're saying he, the gates are open, and, and even, so their conscience is there, but God gives them a second chance. They can come in now. Yeah. That's not fair. That's not fair. We didn't get a second. Yes. Just demonstrating that they are, have already made that choice. Okay, yes. Wendell? A chance is not a chance unless there is an option to, ch- to change. And if you are so sealed, there's no option to change. You are all right. And, show, and it shows that you guys are really at like six and seven thinking, yes. I was going to say, even if that is the argument, it gives the people in the city a second chance to leave. Well. <laughs> if they were going to make that argument, okay, all right, interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right, you're right. But you know something? Would closing the gates keep the people in the city there against their will? Are we now imprisoned? We are in prison! Some people think about this. Some people think. In Revelation, we become a pillar in the house of our God, and never again shall we leave it. That's scripture. We're trapped inside that building for all eternity. <laughs> No, because what is the heavenly sanctuary built out of? We are living stones built together for the house of the Lord. You're a pillar and you'll never leave it because you're part of the construction blocks that build that house. Remember the quantum connections we talked about a few weeks ago. We are all interconnected, being brought back into unity under one head, even Jesus Christ. We will always be a pillar in the house of God, no matter where we are in the universe. It's really brilliant and beautiful when you see it. Yes. Would that also be a representation of the the workers that have come at the 11th hour? that God would give them the same as he gave the person who's been working all day if they choose to come to work. Okay, that's a little bit different, but let's talk about that. Because people say, it's not fair, I've been working out here all day. Working out here all, heat of the day. And, and I, only get a, I only get a dollar, and they came in, worked an hour, and they get a dollar? What law lens? This is the, we'll tie the two together. Those who say, are they getting a second chance? What law lens are you looking through? Do you look in that level four and below, impose law, rules, you broke it, you missed your chance, ollie ollie in free, time's up, yep, clock ran out, it's rules, sorry, too bad, your time's over, can't give you another chance. Um, those worked all day, what are, they, what are they thinking of? Self, their own reward. But if you think this through, under the parable of the metaphor, working in the field, what is the actual payday? What is your pay for being a worker in the field? Eternal life. Salvation and eternal life. (laughs) That's what your payday is. So is there a different payday for those who become workers at the end of the day? Or those that become all day? No, it's the same payday. That's why they get the same amount of pay, because it's the exact same payday. It's the same payoff. But here's what they missed. Those who came in the early morning, not only did they get the same payday at the end of the day, didn't they get the privilege of working with the master all day long? The joy of, of gaining wisdom and horticulture in the metaphor or wisdom and reality and how reality works and how to reach hearts and minds and they've grown personally in their knowledge of him. Life eternals, they might know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ. They're growing in their knowledge and maturity. Those at the end of the day, they missed all that. 
But that's only level six and seven thinking. Level four thinking, it's not fair. I worked, I slaved. I was out here just toiling away, and I should get a bigger reward. Well, that comes down to how we live life now, which is we still live life with pain and suffering in this world. But we have the choice of living in Christ now, which essentially means eternity starts for me now. Absolutely. Jesus comes. And that's right. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. abundantly now. That's exactly understanding reality. Working in harmony with God's design here and now doesn't mean we don't have problems. It means we can deal with those problems under the umbrella of understanding reality in a relation with God who actually cares and has overruled anything the world can do to you. All right, so back to this. Do you give him a second chance? It's, it's several have already said in here. This is not God giving a second chance. This is God demonstrating, i.e. giving a demonstration, giving a revelation, God allowing the wicked themselves to reveal to the entire onlooking universe that they have hardened their hearts beyond healing and no amount of truth No amount of evidence has any persuasive power on them at all. There is no opportunity in in such a case. They are fixed in their rebellion, and God's actions to leave the gate open reveal and confirm that fact. That's what that's all that's going on here. Yes. This harmonizes with the idea of the of the third angel's message, the hour of his judgment is coming. Yes. God is being judged. Was he just? Was he fair? He opens the gate. Nobody wants it. So he, you could say that God has made a judgment by deciding these people decided they didn't want it. These people decided they did. And doing that, but then he opens the gates and says, evaluate the judgment. So let's put it under medical model terms. God has made a judgment. God has made a diagnosis. And raising them with the gates open is the confirmatory test that confirms his diagnosis. Okay, it confirms it. He diagnosed them unhealable, and now, by their own actions, they confirm he was right. Yeah. So, second point that we learn about this, the fire. The fire comes down from him who sits on the throne and flows where first? Into the city. Now, who's in the city? This is the home of the righteous. The fire flowing into the city. Is God destroying the righteous? No, this, remember, from Malachi... What is it that extends from the Son of Righteousness? Healing in His beams. What comes from the fire of Him sits on the throne with the fires of love and truth, which heal, restore, renew those who are open, susceptible, and movable by such love and truth. And so we will live forever. Remember the Daniel chapter 7 text. The Ancient of Days takes His throne and rivers of fire come out before Him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands are standing in this fire. This is not harmful to righteous. And it's revealed. This is also notice, not declaration. I declare that my fire does not hurt people. No, it's revelation. He actually reveals reality. The fire flows through us. We are invigorated. We're transformed. We live in it. But it goes out now through the city to those who have hardened themselves. And a, a good text for that um, is Isaiah 33, starting with verse 14. They're terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil, this is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be on the mountain fortress. And who lives in the fire. It's the righteous. Exactly right. Well well read. And so if you put this in mind then, those who have solidified themselves in selfishness and lies, when this fires of love and truth... These consuming fires, these eternal burnings flow out through the city. What do they prefer and what do they experience? 
This is what, this is the time when the Bible says things like there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's torture of mind, torment of, of psyche, agony of soul, regret, shame, guilt. Question, how long will it continue? What brings an end to their suffering? Well, if death will, what brings their death? This is a piece I want to add to your thinking. Their voluntary surrender of their life. Until they say, the Lord is king. So, I'm going to read to you out of, again, Great Controversy 541 and 542. See what you think. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. Voluntary with themselves. And just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood... The fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable, which is also his diagnosis. The wicked are incurable. Why would it happen like this? Why? Why does it happen like this? Is God inflicting this upon them? Is this a natural result of the condition that they put themselves in when God restores his universe back to heart? When God stops hiding, when God stops veiling himself, when God stops shielding us from his full presence, is this the natural result of what happens to those who are still out of harmony? If it does work like this, wicked being confronted with truth and love, and the reality of their own life, the reality of their own life history, their own sins being exposed, causing torment of mind, agony of soul, Point by point as they go over this, they, they voluntarily at some point, I don't want to live like this, I give up. I don't want to live like this, I give up. Might this imply, if that's what's happening, that some might live longer in the fires than others? Or would you expect that every living being, when the fires of truth and love flow out and they come face to face with the fires of truth and love and their own condition, that every human being and angelic being will come to the same conclusion at the exact same moment? Or will some of them process it at different speeds? You can look at death on this earth. Some people die from seemingly very small issues they just let go. Some people will hold on and live for weeks and even months longer because something's unresolved. So are you saying some people might come to the realization much sooner and give up more quickly? Some, could some resist love and truth longer? Might this mean that there might be people in those fires suffering for days and weeks? Is that an infliction? I'm going to read, it, read one more text here. This is out of Early Writings, page 94. And I want you, if you hear anything in here that goes, I, I have trouble with that, that doesn't make sense to me. After all we've talked about, let's unpack it here today. This is, uh, again, at the end of the thousand years, at the same time frame as when the fires were coming down and through the city. Satan rushes into the midst of his followers and tries to stir up the multitude to action. But fire from God out of heaven is rained upon them. We just read about that in the other one. The great men and the mighty men, the noble, the poor, the miserable are all consumed together. I saw that some were quickly destroyed while others suffered longer. 
They were punished according to the deeds done in the body. Some were many days consuming, and just as long as there was a portion of them unconsumed, all the sense of suffering remained, said the angel. The worm of life shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched as long as there is the least particle for it to prey upon. Satan and his angels suffered long. Satan bore not only the weight and punishment of his own sins, but also the sins of the redeemed host, which had been placed upon him. And he must also suffer the ruin of souls for which he has caused. Then I saw that Satan and all the wicked hosts were consumed, and the justice of God was satisfied. And all the angelic hosts and all the redeemed saints with a loud voice said, Amen. Do you understand this clearly? Or does that make, oh man, that language is making it more, oh, like he's going to afflict it and torture it or from what we've laid out already. You see that this is nothing more than speaking to some people at level four and below about the events that we understand why it's going to happen this way. Yes. Well, you know, here in Isaiah 13, starting with verse six, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. Well, what does it mean when it says a portion of them? Yeah. What do you think it means? I don't know. You think it's talking like a toenail? (laughs) Well, there's a toenail over there. They should suffer longer. Is that what it's talking about? Remember, what kind of fire is this already? When Moses came down off the mountain... What was his face doing? What did the children of Israel do when they saw his face? They, 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 they did something. They, their, action, their reaction was to ask him to shield his face. But they experienced something that caused me. What would they experience? Pain. Suffering. Now, did Moses have third degree burns? Did his whiskers burn off? But there's this fire going on here that is causing pain and suffering. And this is very, very low-grade reflected. We're probably talking one, one trillionth of a percentage of what God's unveiled glory is that Moses is shining. And it's still causing pain and suffering. And Ellen White, if you read Patriarchs and Prophets, she says in their conscious guilt, they could not tolerate the heavenly light that should have brought them joy. It caused pain and suffering, okay? What's the problem? The condition of their heart. So with that idea of mind, then go back and answer your question. As long as one portion, is this a physical, is this a physical fire? We're talking physical portion? No, it was one portion of their individuality, their identity, their personhood, their sense of self. If they're still holding on for self-centered reasons, they cannot be in joy because God's presence to them is torture. Not because it's torture, we're living there. Because they hate love. They hate truth. They hate themselves. They hate their condition. They hate everybody around them. And the truth just lets them experience the reality of their own self. And they hate it. And as long as they have consciousness, even a piece left, the only thing they have is pain and suffering because that's reality to them. Are we watching this from inside the city? Yes. Yes. Other, other questions. Yes. When Moses came down from the mountain, patriarchs and prophets says, in their conscious guilt, feeling themselves still under the divine displeasure, they could not endure the heavenly light, which had they been obedient to God would have filled them with joy. There is fear and guilt. The soul that is free from sin will not wish to hide from the light of heaven. And that's beautiful. And if you had read a couple sentences before in that quote, it says, Moses came down from the mountain with the assurance of the divine favor. Nothing but entreaty was in his voice. But in their conscious guilt, feeling themselves under the divine displeasure. They weren't under the divine displeasure. Moses was coming down with the, God's, the assurance of God's favor. But in their conscious guilt, they, they felt in their own hearts under his displeasure. They weren't under his displeasure. 
they misunderstood. That's what lies. That's what lies do to us. You believe your husband's cheating when he's not, or your wife's cheating when they're not. Then when you see them, you, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're hurt. You've got something in you that causes you to feel like you're not loved. You are loved, but you don't feel it because you believe a lie about your spouse. So, hand somewhere else, yes. Would it also be according to their knowledge? Because I know that there's somewhere that talks about what your pastors have taught you and what other people have taught you, and they've been lies. And you don't make it because of the lies that you've been told. Yeah, it's a condition of your own heart and all of your life experiences. My understanding, this truth brings to your awareness your entire life. Your entire life that you can't remember right now. One of the ways we defend ourselves from guilt and shame when we're doing evil is to deny and distort and then to forget. Best of our uh, repress, unconscious. In the light of heavenly truth, you have awareness, not just the historical facts. This is infinite truth on its multi dimensions. So the man who molests his little girl, who has denied and repressed that, now he not only knows historically what he's done, he now, I believe, will have awareness of the pain that she went through. The fear, the agony, the brokenheartedness, the betrayal, and, and the hurt in her eyes as daddy did this to her. He will have such, it will be oppressive. Can you imagine that? And you multiply that out for everything else in our life. You see? This is why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be crushing. Who would want to live in that place like that? It's not an affliction. He's the source of truth. Your neurons start connecting and reality starts being revealed. Now, right here on earth today, where we find ourselves, the sun of righteousness is rising. More and more truth is being revealed every day. Are you assimilating? Are you growing? Are you applying? Are, are you, so that when he comes in his full glory, we will be like those described in scripture. We, this is our savior. We have waited for him. We shall see him face to face for we shall be like him. Like him. That's it. All So last paragraph says, and I've got to jump up to something else because we've got to get to another issue that somebody wanted me to get on. But I'm going to try to do this one too. It talks about being a light in the world. It says, in so doing, being a light of the world, in so doing, we reflect Jesus, the true light of the world. Are we to reflect Jesus? That's maybe a trick question. Let's, let's, are we to reflect other people? Did Jesus say we are to be reflectors in the world or lights in the world? Is there a difference between being a light and being a reflector? Really think this through. Anybody have a reflector on their bike? What's it do? It's function. What happens if there's no other light? So if you are a reflector only, you're darkness. You don't have a light to shine. We're not to be reflectors in my view. We're to be lights in the world. Now, that we don't, we're not the originating source of light. All light originates in Christ. He's the light that lightens... He is the light that reflects out of all men. He is the light that lightens all men, the scripture said. He lightens. We're to have a light in us that we are to, to have our, use our own individual. Once we come to the knowledge of God and understand, do you think he wants us to simply sit back as a reflector and wait to be told how to speak this sermon, how to draw this picture, how to play this piece of music? I want God to tell me. Or does he want us with the love in our heart and the truth that has, been, that has come from him? Does he want us to use our individuality, our God-like abilities to create things to praise and honor him and share. Well, this is out of book Education, page 17. Every human being 
created in the image of God, is endowed with power akin to that of his creator. Individuality, power to think and to do. Again, does God want us to use that power or to remain frozen waiting for somebody else, including a sign from heaven to tell us how to use that power? The men in whom this power is developed, what power? The power to think and to act. Are men who bear responsibility and are leaders in enterprise and influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Instead of confining their study to that which men have said or written, let students be directed to the sources of truth. Pause. What do you think those sources are going to be here? Hmm, listen to this. To the vast fields open for research in nature and revelation. Science and scripture. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny and the mind will expand and strengthen. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act. Men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances. Men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought and courage of their convictions. How can institutions do this? By indoctrinating them into the 28 fundamentals? That's not how we do that. We shut down thinking when we do that. By sheltering them to memorize your your Bible text for every doctrine, to go through and underline in your Bible so you can go through and connect all those. Anybody do that in high school? I did. We had a Bible class, and our whole class for the whole semester was underlining and making these connected Bible links so you could link together to make a point. I think it's showing how reality works, showing how Scripture is revealed in nature and your own life experience, and there's a beautiful harmony. This is how reality works. So would you say then that, in, that's in the case you're talking about, the fire from God is currently going through the temple and out to other people when you allow to lighten you and you use that power for others? I think one application could be that. It's not the ultimate application. The ultimate will be at the end of the thousand years. But yes, I think right now, as being a pillar and a, a light, let your light so shine before man. You know the lamp in the temple sanctuary symbol, symbology? There was a lamp stand, the center pillar made out of solid gold representing Christ. And six, six is the number of a man, man, six, 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 the number of man. There were six additional lights. And those six lights connected to the pillar make seven a perfect number. And the 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 the... Individual bowls where the lamps are the heart of the believers, and only the high priest would come morning and evening and trim the wick on those lamps, meaning that we let Christ in our heart and he trims away, circumcises the heart by the Spirit, and we become brighter lights for him. And thus, in the temple, the light, the lamp was there, which is a, a relationship between godly people and Christ that shine a light out of the temple into the world that draw people to Christ. Yes, so the metaphor is there. And so the, the righteous are used to that, they're used to the flow. They're, they're um, you know, they've embodied that so that being in the Holy Temple in the New Jerusalem won't be anything new to them. Yeah, and so you see, doesn't that, isn't that cool imagery, though? That you're to be a light to the world? That was lamp, shine out into the courtyard, was to draw people into the light, part of it. Additionally, you're supposed to be a incense. When you burn the incense on the altar, the golden altar, your heart, it wafted out over the community, and we are as a fragrant incense, it says, into the world, drawing people to Christ. It's all part of the symbolism talks about um, in the, I think we're in Sunday's lesson, uh, talks about Christ speaking with authority. He spoke as one having authority. And I just want to talk about this question of authority very quickly. What, what gave Christ authority? Did, did his authority come, did this mean that he spoke authoritatively? I have authority, listen to me because I'm in charge. 
Is that what it means with authority? Did it mean that he used the authority of position? You went out in the desert to her, John, you recognize he's a prophet. John endorsed me. You better believe me because I've got the authority of the prophet. Did he use the authority of I'm the son of God? Based on my authority as the son of God, you better listen to me. Did he use that authority? Notice, all these things are used as authority. Is that what it meant when he spoke with authority? Because that's commonly used today. In our, in our organizations, he's the conference president. He's the pastor. Again, I think I've told you this before in some conversations with some local pastors. I, one of the pastors said, look, who are you to question him? He's the Lord's anointed as the senior pastor of the church. You should submit to his authority. I was told that. I said, Caiaphas said the same thing to Jesus. Seriously. That is not biblical authority. He spoke with authority. What does it mean? His understanding of the truth. There you go. He spoke with the authority of reality. This is how God is. This is how the universe is. This is how my kingdom works. This is the kingdom of love. And he demonstrated it in Scripture, quoting Scripture, in science and nature with all his parables, and in their real life experiences. So, uh, this quick quote out of 8 Testimonies 201. Christ spoke with authority. Every truth essential for the people to know he proclaimed with unfaltering assurance and certain, certain un, unfaltering assurance of certain knowledge. So part of his authority was that he understood it and he was so confident in what he said, he came across as someone who actually understood reality. And you, and, and in the same way a doctor might say, you know, I can tell you with certainty if you smoke cigarettes, it's damaging for your health. There's a confidence there. But you know, 150 years ago, doctors couldn't say that. They didn't speak that way. They actually prescribed cigar smoke for emphysema 150 years ago. Okay? So there's an authority of confidence of reality. He knew reality, so there's a confidence there. It's one part of it. Keep going. He uttered nothing fanciful or sentimental. He presented no sophistries, no human opinions, no idle tales, no false theories clothed in beautiful language came from his lips. He didn't speculate. He didn't hypothesize. He didn't uh, uh, guess. He didn't present myths. He didn't present traditions. He didn't uh, go for religious, tr- religious theories. He presented reality. It's how reality works. The statement... That he, the statements that he made were truths established by personal knowledge. He foresaw the delusive doctrines that would fill the world, but he did not unfold them. His teaching, in his teachings, he dwelt upon the unchangeable principles of God's word. What's unchangeable principles? Laws. His design laws. His design laws, there's laws. He magnified the simple, practical truths that common people could understand and bring into their everyday experience. Design laws. Experience, okay? All his teachings, in all his teachings, Christ brought the minds of men in contact with the infinite mind. How did he bring them in contact with the infinite mind? The next sentence is going to tell you. You want to come in contact with the infinite mind? Would you like to come in contact with the infinite mind? He did not direct the people to study men's theories about God, his word, or his works. He taught them to behold God as manifested in his works, science and nature, in his word, scripture, and by his providence's experience. Brilliant. And what do, we, what do we teach? The integrative evidence-based approach. Harmony, scripture, science, experience. Harmony is behold God. You come in contact with the infinite mind. Okay, we've got to jump because I know Tina wants us to talk about this question. I think it's in Monday's lesson, right? Monday's lesson? Helping your neighbor. Helping your neighbor. Who, not, we won't answer the question, who's our neighbor? Because I think we understand every human being in need is a neighbor. So that's, that one's answered. But the question is, that I want to ask, and we talked last week about 
providing a need and what that need might be. This week, I want to ask the question, what are some reasons not to help your neighbor? Are there biblical reasons not to help someone in a, in a real need? Not the one in Corinthians where it says, he who shall not work shall not eat. That's not a, the, the need there is to let him work. That, so you're going to provide the need for him by not giving him a handout when he's able to work. His need is work. So you're going to provide that for him. So what are some biblical reasons when someone's in real need not to help them? Yes. Well, if, if they come to you with their perceived need, but you, understanding God's perspective of them and salvation, you uh, give them something that would hurt them, even if it's what they want right now, that would hurt them, then that's not helping your neighbor. So number one is, is, is recognizing we don't give something that is not a need to somebody just because they think it's a need. So let me clarify my question a little more closely. One is a time not to give somebody their legitimate need. Well, you don't give somebody money if they're a drug user. Their legitimate need, that's what she was saying. We don't give something to hurt them. So, so you guys are going down the same line. So yes, we all agree. We're not going to give somebody something that we know they will harm themselves with. Okay, take that off the table. This is something that could actually help them. When is it biblically right not to do that? Oh, okay, there's one over here. And so we're going to read out of Mark 6, 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by the disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach them in the synagogue, and many heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he, that he's been, that's been given him? Then, uh, that he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't these his sisters here with us? And they looked, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Did they have real needs? Real needs that would have helped them? But Christ didn't provide for those needs. There was a reason. What was the reason? Oh, there are times when you can see a real need in someone and that person is not open to be helped. That's one reason. We place so much credence on healing and miracles. Mm-hmm. And that verse says he went to give them the living water. They didn't want it, so he just did a few miracles and left. In this, so, so whether it's living water, truths, the mind, whether it's physical healing, are there people that you can see in real legitimate need that you might actually have something that would genuinely transform their life, but they don't want it? Well, how about don't cast your pearls before swine? swine. Yeah. Now, does it say don't cast your criticisms before swine? Get, get your mind around it. Don't, don't, don't cast your condemnations. Don't cast your judgments before. No, don't cast your pearls, your words of wisdom. So you have to have discernment. They have a legitimate need. But if their minds are hardened and they would only take it to abuse you, do you understand they might kill you? But what happens to the conscience of the person who killed Stephen? They hardened. See, they didn't actually destroy. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul. See, Stephen's coming up in the resurrection. We're going to see him in heaven. What What were they doing to their own characters, their own conscience? They were destroying themselves. Don't cast pearls before people you know are going to use it to harden their own hearts even further. They have a real need, but you're not going to... You're not going to give it. I have much to say, Jesus said, but you can't now bear it. There's another example, though. There's one other reason why we don't. It's real important you recognize this one. Did Jesus ever withdraw from the crowds when they still had needs? Why? They have needs. He's got the ability. Why does he withdraw? Why? Regeneration. Personal regeneration. And we're going to come to this question about loving 
others as, as you love yourself. You see, one of the first rules in a psychiatric unit is staff safety, not patient safety. Because if the staff are not safe, then the patients are not safe and no care can be provided for the patients. You see the principle here. There are many good-hearted people that have a compassion heart to help people, but they fail with this principle. And so the devil says, oh, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, they're going to do good work. We're not going to divert them into pornography. We're not going to divert them into drug use. What are we going to do? We'll crush them. Let's bring so many needy people to them that they can't say no to anybody. And they'll exhaust themselves out and help no one. So the farmer who says, I'm going to donate all the crops on my farm to feed the hungry peoples of the world. Because I, 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 just, I just have a heart for people. I want to feed the starving. He is so committed to not being selfish, he won't even eat one meal a day off his farm. How many does he feed in the end? None, because he starves to death. There are other... You know, Jesus said to, when, when, when the woman anointed his feet, give this to the poor. You will always have the poor. You only have me for a short time. He wasn't saying neglect the poor. But now the, the, the principle, we must love our neighbors as ourselves. What does this mean? Love our neighbors as ourself. Tim, would you also be saying that a person who really feels that there's a, a huge need to intervene because you're doing it beneficially and, and uh, with charity in your heart and everything, unless you have thinking above level four, you're, you're really missing the mark then. There's truth in that too. But, but, but I want you to get clear. Really, you're going to have to... You, I think you're, you're kind of cognating on the, on the notes that I'm hitting here today. But if you haven't really thought of this before, you're going to have to spend some time thinking about this to really find in your heart where that line is drawn. But Back to your question, how do you love? Yeah, that's what I want to get to. Right here, love others as you love yourself. Can people, let me put it this way, can you love other people if you don't love yourself? No. It's about putting your oxygen mask on first. Uh, she said it's about putting your oxygen mask on first in the airplane, right? That's a good one. Yeah. Same principle here. If you are unconscious because you were trying to help everybody, you really don't help anybody, do you? Okay. So here's the principle. That's exactly right. If a person doesn't have, now we're not talking narcissism, egotism, self-exaltating attitude of self-promotion. Oh, it's me. I've arrived. Everybody bow down and worship. That's not, that's not love. And that's a counter. Many people think, oh, you're just putting yourself for it. No, we're talking a healthy love as a child of God in relation with him, valuing who you are as his being. If you don't have love in your heart, you don't have any, then can you have any love to give to anybody else? You can't give what you don't have. Okay? So you have to come to a place where you experience love in your own heart first. Then it, remember, ask for me, and it comes from the relation with God. Woman at the well, ask for me the water of life, which is the water of love. It would well up inside you and overflow to many, but it has to come from inside. You have to have it in you first because people who do not love themselves well, instead of seeking to give and to share and to bless, they seek to get. 
They are drawing from others rather than giving to others. They seek to get love, to get assurance, to get acceptance, to get validation, to get approval, to get praise, to get security, to get liked. And if they don't get it, they they do lots of behaviors that seem like they're helping somebody else. They'll go clean someone's house. They'll go buy them flowers. They'll do all this. But what are they doing it for? They're doing it to get liked, to get love, to get approval. And if it doesn't doesn't come, see if I ever clean your house again. See if I ever wash your car. See if I ever do this. You you, you don't even care about me. You're my friend, you don't even care. I did all this for you. You don't even care. Why? Because they're seeking to get. And, you can, and, these, lo, and these relationships are codependent, if you will, in these psychiatric terms, and they always die. They're destructive relationships. You cannot be sustained. So you can't love someone else. You can't do it until you first love yourself well. And that loving yourself well is a healed experience like the one of the well experienced with Jesus Christ. And then in closing... I'm going to try to jump ahead to, to well, jump ahead. We're going to Tuesday's lesson. It's all about being salt to the earth. What's it mean to be salt? We're just going to close with reading from the remedy, this idea of salt and saltiness, and if salt's no good, it needs to be thrown out. Uh, uh, this is, this is uh, interpretive, as you know, but here's what I put in the remedy, Matthew 5.13. You are like salt to humanity. And think what salt does, and you'll see what's, what's in here. Preserving the knowledge of God... Salt, preserve, preservative. Providing the flavor of heaven. Increasing the thirst for God. But if the salt loses its saltiness, unless it becomes salty again, it is useless and will be thrown out and trampled upon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will fill us with your love, the water of life, into our hearts. Heal the brokenness in us so that we can experience being loved as your children. And that love may flow out from us to others. That we might be salt in a world, preserving the true knowledge of your kingdom of love. Providing the flavor of your, of your loving atmosphere of heaven and, and increasing people's hunger and thirst for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.